What's the most powerful thing that you've ever seen? Um, a storm? A bushfire? Ever stood at the bottom of a very impressive waterfall? Ever been in a hurricane or ever stood on the edge of a volcano? What about that mini tornado that whipped through Dubbo a couple of years ago and threw shipping containers around and ripped houses apart? Did you see that or did you drive out um, towards Fergrave and have a look at the trail of devastation that it left? Have you ever seen something so powerful that it scared you? I found it hard to think of anything that powerful. Probably the most powerful natural thing that I've witnessed was Niagara Falls. There's a little holiday snap of me in front of Niagara Falls, nice little rainbow there. It was incredible, the roar of the water, the spray. But I wouldn't say I was scared. I mean, we're all pretty safe. You weren't allowed near the falls. It was powerful, but it wasn't scary. Now, in the part of the Bible that we're looking at this morning... Jesus and 12 of his disciples, you heard it read already, they're in a boat, in a storm, the boat is sinking, and they are scared because their lives are in danger. And then Jesus speaks to the storm, and the storm stops. And if you are paying careful attention to the reading, you may have noticed that after the storm is calmed, the disciples are even more afraid after the storm stopped. Look with me there at verse 41 on um, the left of your bulletin there at the bottom of the passage. Verse 41, this is after the storm is calmed. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, the only thing scarier than drowning in a storm is being in a boat with someone who can speak to a storm and it stops. What do you do with something like that? How do you process something like that? Is it even possible for someone to have that much power? That's what we're thinking about this morning. And especially we're thinking about that question the disciples asked, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I wonder if that's a question that you've ever asked. Who is Jesus? I wonder if that's a question that you've ever given some serious thought to. Did he even exist? That's an easier question to answer because pretty much every historian agrees that Jesus existed. It's a bit hard to argue against that when even his enemies and people who were opposed to Christianity wrote about him. So the big question is not did he exist. The big question is... Who was he? Was he some kind of religious teacher? Was he a con man? Was he crazy? I mean, who says to a storm, be still? Was he just a good person and all kinds of legends afterwards grew up around him? Or you might even think, who cares? Some guy who lived 2,000 years ago, does it even matter? Well, let me suggest to you that Who is Jesus is a very important question to answer because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then this is something that you can't afford to ignore. So you at least need to think about it and we're going to spend the rest of this morning thinking about who he is and then how we should respond to him. So let's pick it up. Mark chapter 4 verse 35, the beginning of the reading there. 
35. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, that day there at the start is just the day that's been described in the whole of chapter 4, but we didn't read it. Jesus has been speaking to crowds all day in a town called Capernaum. Now, there's the modern-day remains of Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. This is not the first time that Jesus had been to Capernaum. Like we saw last week, Jesus is pretty popular there because he's been healing people. Not long earlier in Mark 2, people had smashed a hole in the roof of a house to try and get close to Jesus. And in the next chapter after this one, chapter 5, people are trying to push through the crowd just to touch him. Everyone's heard about him. Everyone wants a piece of the action. It's pretty intense. And so in order to speak to people and not get mobbed by them, Jesus hops into a boat. This is at the start of chapter 4. And he pushes off from the shore so that he can speak to people in the crowd from the boat and they're all on the shore without them all trying to touch him. Then after a big day of speaking, when evening came, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. That is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's a bit of a picture looking across the Sea of Galilee. It's 10 or 15 kilometres across to the other side, depending on exactly where you're going to. There's probably a couple of hours of... um, daylight left before it's completely dark if evening is sunset they've still got a couple of hours of twilight they should be able to make it across no worries it does sound a little bit odd though because you would think at the towards the end of the day jesus jesus would want to be heading back home now we know that he's staying in capernaum at the time so why isn't he going back to the house there well sounds like jesus and his disciples want a bit of a break from the crowd So the only place for some peace and quiet is to go across the sea. So verse 36, they jump into the boat and they head over to the other side. Now, this here is a first century fishing boat they dug up in 1986. It's the remains of a boat anyway. In 1986, there was a particularly large drought in that area of the world. The Sea of Galilee receded to the lowest that it's ever been. And a boat appeared, which they have dated between 50 BC and 50 AD. Isn't that cool? That is a fishing boat from exactly the time that Jesus lived. It's a really interesting read. 14 times different types of wood on on that bit of the boat alone. Really interesting technology, but that's not for today's talk. What I want you to notice is, it's a bit hard to see in this photo, but the average fishing boat there is not that big. And if you poke around in other parts of the Gospels, there might be three or four people in the fishing boat, like James and Zebedee and their father. At one point, there's six people mentioned in a boat. But here, there are 13. 13 blokes in a fishing boat that size, it's going to be a bit of a squeeze. You wouldn't want to get stuck in bad weather. But they're not too worried. In fact, they don't even bother ducking back home to get Jesus a change of clothes or anything. They just go straight across as they are. Did you notice that in verse 36? Leaving the crowd behind, they took Jesus along, just as he was, in the boat. So off they go. Now, it turns out there's a webcam looking over the Sea of Galilee, um, right from Capernaum. How good is that? And I've been checking it out over the last week or so, and let me tell you, the weather consistently looks pretty good. And I even checked out yr.no. This is from yesterday. 
That's from a couple of days ago. The sun's shining. Here's a beautiful sunset on the Sea of Galilee. Here's four days ago, a little bit bleak. There's some tourists there. Seven days ago, the sun's out, bit of a crowd. Here's some people taking their boats for a spin. And this is a particularly busy day. They are boat trailers on the rocky beach there. Anyway, nice weather. It makes sense that Jesus would be in a boat speaking to people. And they probably wouldn't have been expecting too much when they get in and start off for the other side for a nice evening row. But things can get pretty windy. Here is a bit of a storm or a bit of a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what happened in verse 37. A furious squall came up. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Don't need, don't need sound for it, that's all right, just to get a bit of a look, look at it. Now, this is not the ocean, okay? We're not talking like a three-metre swell. This is a little inland sea. But there's a massive wind, and Mark tells us the waves are breaking over the side of the boat. Four of them are fishermen. That leaves nine of them who aren't. Thirteen blokes in a slightly overloaded boat. The waves are cracking over the side, trying to row ten kilometres over the sea. They're taking on water faster than they can bail it out. Could be four or five kilometres from the nearest shore if they're out in the middle. They're scared. They're going down. Jesus, meanwhile, is fast asleep. Look, it's hard to think that you could be asleep at a time like this, but he has been preaching from sunrise to sunset. They wake him up, verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Maybe it's a sandbag. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I'm not sure what the disciples are expecting Jesus to do at this point. He's not a fisherman, he's a carpenter. Do they, want him, do they just want an extra hand to help bail water out? Do they just want to let him know that they're cranky with him before they drown because it was his idea, the stupid idea, to cross over to the other side? I don't know what they're expecting, but whatever it was, I don't think it was what happened in verse 39. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now that's weird. I've heard of people praying about the weather to God. You know, Lord, please give us a nice day for the wedding tomorrow. We don't want rain, that kind of thing. That kind of prayer makes sense because God is in control of the weather. A bit like that psalm Alan had read for us earlier at the start of the meeting. In Psalm 107, it talks about people being stuck at sea in a storm. In Psalm 107, it talks about their courage melting away. They're at the end of their wits. They ask God for help. Look at this. This is from Psalm 107. Some people stuck in the sea. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. So we might expect Jesus to pray to God, say something like, Lord, please rescue us. Please stop this storm. Don't let us die. God, I know you're more powerful than this. Maybe that's what the disciples were expecting. 
But that's not what Jesus does, is it? He doesn't ask God to calm the storm. Jesus calms the storm himself because he is God. He just speaks to it and it obeys him. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, after the storm dies down, the disciples are now terrified because who has that kind of power? And it's not as just as if this is just a one-off incident. Read on and this kind of thing happens again and again. When they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which they do, they don't turn around, they keep going over to the other side. They find a man when they arrive who's possessed by demons. He's so strong, he's got some kind of superhuman strength, no one can subdue him, he's smashed chains off him, and with nothing more than a command, Jesus sets this guy free. And over there, they have a very similar response. They are scared of Jesus. Listen to how that account ends. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. You can read about that later if you want. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So it's not like Jesus is doing a new few healings now and people want to come and see him. No, Jesus is so powerful, it is unnerving people. They want to get rid of him. Then he comes back to Capernaum and he raises a dead girl back to life and it goes on and on. Now you might be sitting there thinking, hang on, miracles don't happen. No one can calm a storm. No one can raise a dead person to life. This is fairy story kind of stuff. Look, it's good to be sceptical, especially with claims that are this big. But I think the biggest question you should be asking isn't, can miracles happen? There's a bigger question here, and that question is, is there a God? Because if there's no God, of course you should be sceptical to think that a miracle could happen. But if there is a God, if there is a creator who made this world and who made us, then of course miracles can happen because God just has to speak and he can do anything. If he created this whole world, then calming a storm is nothing for him. So if there is a God... And if these kinds of miracles do happen, that means we may need to pay very special attention because this is a sign that God is at work. And that's exactly the way Mark wants us to see what's ha happening here, what's going on in chapter 4. Now, the disciples don't know this yet. They don't know that Jesus is God. They're still trying to work out who he is. But they sure know that he's someone with more power than they can imagine. And so they are asking the right question. Who is this? 
even the wind and the waves obey him. And that's the big question we're left with. Who is this? And we won't find the answer just in Mark chapter 4, but as we read on in the rest of Mark's gospel, we find out who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. That's why Jesus has complete control over everything around him, whether it's sickness, whether it's demons, whether it's storms. Jesus is God come to earth as a man. That's what we're thinking about at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. And when you come to realise that for the first time, when you seriously consider that that could be true, it can be scary. I mean, if you were to read through some of the biographies of Jesus, there is no doubt about it. He says and he does some unexpected things. But the more you encounter Jesus, the more you read about him, the more you start to see him for who he is. The more you start to see that he was a person of integrity. And eventually you are driven to the point where you need to make a decision about how you are going to respond. Because as you come to realise who Jesus is, at the very same time we come to realise that we have not treated him properly. Because If there really is a God, and if we've spent our entire life ignoring him, if we've spent our entire life working against him, shutting him out, doing and saying stuff that he hates, and then we discover that the God we've been pushing away, he is actually there, and he's powerful, well, that can be scary. That should terrify us because he has every right to be angry with us about the way that we've treated him. And you do not want to be on the wrong side of someone this powerful. I take it that's why the disciples are so terrified. They've just witnessed the sheer power of Jesus and they're starting to put the pieces together about who he is. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't come into the world to punish us. He came into the world to rescue us. We saw a bit about that last week and we'll be looking at it over the next few weeks. Jesus came to offer you and I help. And we see a little picture of that in this account because what has Jesus just done with the disciples here? He's rescued them. He's just saved their lives from a storm. Now that's not the main rescue that Jesus came into the world for. Okay? There's a bigger rescue coming. If you read on in Mark's gospel, Jesus, at the end of the gospel, will die on a cross and he will rise from the dead and Mark tells us that he did that to bring us forgiveness. That was his biggest rescue. He died to bring us forgiveness for the way that we have wrongly treated God. Jesus, God in the flesh, come into the world to rescue people from their sin. According to Mark, that's who Jesus is. And the only response to that is to trust him, is to give our lives to him, is to let him have the rightful place in our lives 
that he deserves. That is the king. Have you done that yet? Have you realised who Jesus is? Have you come to realise that he's the king? Have you acknowledged that? Have you come to Jesus and asked him for help? Have you asked him to forgive you? might be worth thinking about where on that timeline you are. Investigating who Jesus is. Come to realise that he's the king. Asked him for help and forgiveness. C.S. Lewis has a book called Mere Christianity where he tries to explain to people who Jesus is. And this is what he says in the middle of his book. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not just be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level as a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. In other words, he's deceiving people. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him your Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred. We saw that last week in the Pharisees. Terror. We saw that in the disciples and adoration. That is the people who go on to follow him. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. That's what C.S. Lewis concluded about Jesus. What about you? Who do you think Jesus was? How will you respond to him? Hatred? Terror or adoration? Will you come to him and bow your knee to him and find forgiveness? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have so many accounts written by different people about the things that Jesus said. And what he did. And Father, we don't want people to be hoodwinked here this morning or persuaded into something that um, is unbelievable. So we pray that everyone might be open-minded about Jesus. That they might investigate the claims about who he was. But Father, if he is your son, if he is you come to earth, Father, please help us not to... um, reject that 
Please help us not to shut ourselves off from that. Please help us to be able to be honest and openly investigate who Jesus is. And Father, for those of us who um, have come to see that Jesus is truly your son, please help us to submit to him. Please help us not to play games with him. Please help him to live with him as our king. But Father, most of all, thank you that Jesus didn't come into this world to use his power against us. Thank you that he came into this world to rescue us. Amen.